church. And the reason we wanted to do that was not just because it was a new year and it, you know, it's kind of a typical thing to do at the beginning of a new year is review what you're all about, but really because we wanted everyone in this community to have a chance to reiterate for themselves what it means to be a part of Hill City. Because this church is not about the people who are on this stage or maybe the people who you see with volunteer t-shirts on but it's about every single person who calls this their church home. And the vision, mission, and value should be reflected in every person who calls this their church home. So we want to consider what that means, what it means to have all of you guys as part of our church family and how your gifts and talents can be used for God's kingdom. So if you didn't get a chance to listen to those, hopefully you can go back and do that. We're actually starting a new series this week, and it's called Rooted. So we're really excited about this new series. Yeah, I heard one cheer, you know. Uh, <laughs> so we have a Rooted curriculum. We did not write. We adopted from another organization that we're going to bring our life groups through as we cover these topics every week. And Rooted is really all about how you can get rooted into your faith, your life as a disciple of Jesus. And I like the title a lot because it speaks to something I've been considering a lot in the last year. 
And that is the image of a tree from Psalm 1. So if you're not familiar with it, in Psalm 1, the psalmist compares a person to a tree with deep roots. So a lot of my time uh, with God for the last year has been spent meditating on this picture of a tree flourishing beside a stream of water. It represents a person who delights in and obeys God's word. And because they do that, they grow and they prosper. I'm a really visual person, so when I've been reading this psalm, I've been trying to imagine what this tree looks like and what its roots look like as they grow all gnarly over boulders and things so that they can get the nutrients, get the water they need from the stream nearby. And I was thinking too about what would this tree look like if it didn't have a water source? What would it look like if it was all shriveled up and had become a husk that was just waiting for the next storm to roll in so it acted like a fire hazard? And so I've been thinking about this picture and trying to think about uh, if my life looks more like that growing, prospering tree, or if it is a tree that is dying in some ways. And what do my roots look like? What are they growing into? What are they feeding off of? So each week in this series, we'll be addressing different questions and filling out our vision of life with God and in the church so that we can put down roots and really dig into those solid things that hold on when times are difficult. And I want to challenge you as we start this series. I know you might be sick of challenges if you have been here for the last three weeks because we've ended every sermon with a challenge. But I want to challenge you not to take this time as sort of your Sunday morning check mark, um, the time you went to church and you had a good time, you talked to a few people and then you went home, but rather take it as an opportunity to really dig into some questions that you might have heard before, but not considered as deeply as you could have. So this week, our question is, who is God? It's a big question. <laughs> I was not uh, thrilled about trying to narrow in on what to preach about to address that question, because there's a lot of different directions you could go with immediately with the question, who is God? I think a better question, or at least one that you can answer more easily, is who is not God? Because the Bible gives us all sorts of answers to who God isn't, and the different idols that we serve in our lives. The Bible lists things like money, power, work, other people, and we could come up with some modern examples too. Our own constitution has the pursuit of happiness, which definitely could be an idol. We can make an idol out of government or political affiliations or even family. Sorry, focus on the family because it's not really what the Bible says. So we can make idols of all sorts of things, but I think the biggest idol that we have in our lives, whether we realize it or not, is ourselves because we are not God. We often conjure an image of God that reflects a bigger, maybe more powerful version of us. 
He becomes somebody who reflects all of our views, agrees with us on everything, and usually shares all of our biases. Anne Lamott wrote once, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. <laughs> I don't know if Anne and I would agree on a, on a whole lot more than that. We'd have some interesting discussions for sure. But I think she really hit it on the head with that quote. If God does not surprise you and he agrees with you on everything, and he wants you to pursue all your wildest dreams and desires, then you might have made God in your own image. Yet, if God isn't a bigger version of us, of course, this is all assuming you believe in a God to begin with, then God has to be transcendent, which is the first word I want us to look at. So transcendent means extending or lying beyond the limits of ordinary experience or being beyond comprehension. And this makes sense philosophically because if there is just one creator God, then he has to be beyond what we ourselves as the creation would make up if we were making up a God. Of course, even if you object to the idea of God existing at all, you might follow many scientists who think, following current models of the universe, that there had to be some sort of starter force, something that began it all. Interestingly, if you have such a starter force, it would have to be transcendent too, in the sense that anything with a beginning, like the universe, would also have to have a start and down the line it would go until you came to something outside of our norms, outside of our experience, outside of our laws of physics that could be eternal, transcendent. And if you don't like the word God, yes, you could just say a transcendent force. So what does that mean? How are we finding out who God is by all of that? Well, it means first of all that all those silly questions like, could God make a rock so big that he couldn't move it, are pointless. And it means that Christian doctrines like the Trinity or endless debates on how God's sovereignty and salvation work are actually proof that what we should know, uh, a proof of what we should know by common sense that God's incomprehensible. We can't understand him perfectly. We will never understand him perfectly. And if we stop there, if we just stop, God is transcendent, that's all we can know about him, then we'd actually hold the same beliefs as our founding fathers. A lot of you may already know, founding fathers mostly were not Christians. They were deists who believed that there was some sort of starting force that they called God, but that he had left the universe to its own devices. They believed in a supreme being, but not that it could be known, and certainly not in the miracles of the Bible, and not in a man named Jesus Christ who is actually divine. So like Thomas Jefferson, if we stop there, we can say, oh yeah, it'd be great if a country followed a moral code, even if we don't want to follow it ourselves. 
but we would cut out all of that miraculous mumbo jumbo. That's the conclusion, right? Starter force, he's outside of our ability to comprehend, so let's keep living however we choose. For Thomas Jefferson, that meant ripping pages out of Bibles, having an affair with a slave that he owned, and, you know, numerous other faults. But the Bible doesn't stop there. The Bible and the thousands of years that it spans and the miracle of its dozens of authors with corroborating accounts is evidence of the next trait of God that I think we have to look at. The fact that God's self-revelatory. And to examine this, we are going to finally turn to our scripture for today in Genesis 12. So what John usually says after this, right, is we celebrate the word of God at Hill City because the word reveals Jesus and Jesus changes our lives. That's actually really important. You probably heard it so many times if you sat in here that you haven't thought about it, but we're talking about God being self-revelatory and we're saying that the word reveals Jesus. We could also say Jesus reveals who God is. Self-revelatory means self-revealing. We believe that God, the transcendent creator, starter force extraordinaire, can be known because he chooses to make himself known to us. In Genesis 12, we get an interesting story. Even though we're only 12 chapters into the Bible, we've passed through many generations since perfect creation when God said, it is good and made humans in his image. Humanity chose their way rather than God's, and sin warped the entire world from intimate human relationships to the relationship between humanity and the creation they were supposed to act as guardians for, not to mention the ultimate break, that between God and humanity between the God who made a garden for them to live in and walked in it with them and the people who chose their own way. The only glimmer of hope we get for Genesis 1 through 12 is the promise that out of the woman will come someone who destroys the enemy. But that's pretty vague, and I'm sure everyone from Eve and Adam on were wondering, how exactly is that going to happen? Not much in the way of an answer is given until chapter 12 when we meet someone named Abram. In verse 1, it says, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. It's kind of an abrupt beginning to this section. God speaks to Abram, and the narrative actually leads us to believe that it was sort of out of the blue. Abram was from Ur. He came from a people that traditionally worshipped a moon god, not a transcendent god, but one they could see, one they could pattern off of a phenomena. 
And though we're not told whether Abram and his family worshipped the one true God or not, it seems regardless of who Abram was before this encounter or what his plans were, God revealed himself to Abram and it changed everything. It's really bizarre, though. I think we see God talking to people so often in the Old Testament that we get a little too used to it. But to actually imagine God speaking to Abram and asking him to pack up his entire life and move to an unknown place and choosing randomly, it seems, to make an enormous promise to him. But Abram believed and he followed him. And unlike the transcendent gods or cosmic forces we're presented with in different religions and philosophies today, which require humans to undergo some series of steps or practices in order to transcend reality and become in touch with the divine, the transcendent God of the Bible instead steps down to meet us. Without his help, there's no reason we would find him. We'd be left theorizing about some potential starter force. And I'm sure you guys have seen this in your own personal lives as well. The moment when God stepped down and met you, when he graciously intervened to reveal himself to you, to show you his character, to speak to you as his child. But this episode in Genesis 12 was just the beginning. Following the story of Abram throughout Genesis, we find this covenant repeated over and over to him. In Genesis 15, it says, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. And in Genesis 17, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And in 18 and 22, again and again, it's repeated. And to his son Isaac in Genesis 26. And to Jacob, his grandson, the conniving trickster, in Genesis 28. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And onwards it goes to a nation enslaved in Egypt, to Rahab, a foreign prostitute that takes a step of faith and lowers a red rope, to Ruth, the widowed descendant of child sacrificers, to a boy with a sling and some stones who becomes a king, and to a young girl named Mary, until at just the right time the promise to bless all peoples of the earth is fulfilled and God taking on flesh and living among us, being revealed in the person of Jesus. Galatians 3, 26 through 29 says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What promise? The promise that through Abraham, all nations of the earth would be blessed when God reveals himself in the person of Jesus so that humans can finally find their way back to relationship with him. That's an amazing history. 
I found it really interesting when I was preparing for this sermon because I've been reading through Genesis on my own since the start of the new year. I haven't been in the Old Testament for a while. And it's amazing in all those stories how often God calls himself the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Especially if you take a minute and examine what kind of people these guys were. I mean, Abraham kept passing his wife off as his sister. Isaac did the same thing and promoted sibling rivalry. Jacob, I mean, there's not enough time to list all the things he did if you read through it. But think about it, that a transcendent creator of the entire universe chooses to define himself by his relationship with those imperfect humans who he made a promise to. Not that he had to or that he was manipulated to by their attempts to, to do good, but he did it out of his own will and his own desire and his own plan. It's a promise that leads us to the last trait I'd like to have you consider in answering who God is. God's goodness. What do we mean when we call God good? Have you thought about that before? It's interesting how many songs God's goodness is in. <laughs> A lot of songs. <laughs> but it's hard to define what we mean when we say that. It can mean morally pure, truthful, compassionate, exemplary. I'm sure you know what you mean when you call somebody a good friend or a good husband or good wife. But what does it mean when we talk about God? In studying who God is, we have to be mindful of something. Um, I found a theologian who writes about Gerald Bray. He says, the attributes of God are not explanations of who or what he is in himself, since that lies beyond our comprehension. Rather, they explain who and what he is in relation to us, his creatures. That means when we talk about God's goodness or his transcendence or his being self-revelatory, we're not talking about describing perfectly the fullness of who he is because we can't do that. We're talking about what those things mean in relation to us. We're talking about the goodness he showed in the vast history down the line from the creation of the world to his promise to Adam and Eve, to his promise to Abraham, to all the imperfect descendants that came afterwards and were called God's people. And that includes you and me. If we've become part of the family of Abraham, all of the people throughout history who have put their trust in the fact that God is bigger and better and more faithful than we can imagine and has been so good in revealing himself through the person of Jesus, I'm really thankful that my relationship with him rests in his goodness and not mine. And I'm, I'm thinking there's probably some other churched people sitting in this room who need to hear that. Your relationship with God is based on his goodness, not yours. God is good. As kids, uh, my siblings and I growing up, we used to dance around the living room to an old, I think it was a Dan Moen song called God is Good. 
Any church? Yeah. That was God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. Yeah. So he had like a guitar breakdown. So we just danced like crazy around the living room. But uh, that memory is bittersweet because it comes from a time when I remember God's goodness for a different reason. So my oldest brother died when he was 20 and I was eight years old and it was really sudden. And to this day, long time later, I freely admit I don't really understand why it happened or why God allowed it. There have been times that I've been so frustrated trying to grapple with why that happened or what good could have really come out of it in comparison to the good of having him here. I remember my mom had told me later that in the depths of her grief for her own child, the only thing she could do was hold on to one fact, that God is good. And that trust in God's goodness was the only thing that kept her tethered. It was the root that was down deep that kept her through a miserable, violent, soul-crushing time. God is transcendent, self-revelatory, and good. We won't always understand the workings of living in this broken world, but God is faithful to reveal himself to us, and his goodness is used to guide us to himself. I've been talking a lot about trees, and I know there's been lots of tree pictures or backgrounds up there. The year after my brother died, my uh, parents planted a tree in the front yard. They cut down an old one that was really big and planted a new one, not so big, really skinny. And at the time, it seemed like that skinny new tree would never grow to the size that that old one had been. Because I remember being a kid, like, you know, wrapping my arms around. I could remember how big it was. And that that new one wasn't ever going to get that big, I was sure. But I had to stop and look at it yesterday when I was at the front of the house. It's taller than the house now. And it's really, really thick and healthy and growing. And that tree marks the years, not that I've perfectly understood everything that God does, but it's marked the years that he's continued to reveal himself to me in relationship and the years of goodness he has shown to me and my family. And this is why knowing who God is, is so important. If we don't recognize who he truly is, then we might make a God in our own image who explains everything to us and who has easy answers. If we don't recognize who he truly is, we'll be tempted to think our relationship with him is dependent on us. And that all of our good works and our white knuckle grasping is what keeps our faith afloat. And if we don't recognize who he truly is, we will not root down into the goodness in times of darkness. I'm gonna, uh, we're going to have a worship song at the end of this service here in just a moment. But I want you to remember that the invitation God gave to Abram is the same one that's extended to us today. I have a picture of a starry sky, and I'd like you for a moment, if you can, to imagine the scene I'm going to read to you from Genesis 15. 
In Genesis 15, 5 and 6, it says, He took him outside, God took Abram outside, and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. This was before all the light pollution, so you have to use your imagination. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. You have the same chance today. You have the chance to believe God and to believe who God is, that he is powerful and good beyond your imagination. And I hope that you will accept the invitation he's provided through sending Jesus, through revealing himself and his word. Let's pray. Dear Lord, even as I'm speaking these words, I'm having memories of the goodness you've shown to me over the years of knowing you. And I pray that every person in this room who has a relationship with you would examine those memories too and realize that those are signposts in their journey. Those are the markers they can go back to. Those are the, the things that help them in times of trouble. Pray that we would remember your goodness to us, Lord, and put our trust in that. Pray for everybody in this room who is searching, doesn't know if they believe in you, who doesn't know if they believe in any of this stuff. Lord, you have a special plan for them. And maybe part of them that plan was them sitting here today. I pray that they would honestly and courageously examine their conclusions about you and that you would bring to their mind the goodness you've shown them in their relationships with people and enjoying this creation around them and maybe speaking to their hearts in a way that they were uncomfortable with. Lord, we pray you would move in this place that in those hearts that are so unsure, Lord, you would tip the scales that you would work even now to speak to them in a way that they hear and understand and believe. And we pray, Lord, through this series that we would put down deep roots that would hold us through storms, that our trust would always be in you. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us this morning? We're going to enter one more time, just into a time of worship. We really wanted this to be a response time. Um, like Hannah was saying, you cannot dispute the goodness of God and the Word of God. And when God says, I'm going to do something. There is nothing and no one that can stand in the way of that. And so when God made a promise to Abraham that his descendants would be blessed, he kept that promise. He kept that promise through his offspring, through Isaac, through, through Jacob, through renaming 
Jacob, just like he, rena he renamed Abram 